During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday afternoon here, middle of the corona, and um, I want to do the yard site talk this week early because, hey, I think it's the yard site of a friend of mine, this... uh, podcast today being sponsored in memory of the late Jerry Dr. Jerry Saffer, PhD, a very close friend of mine by his uh, family, by Linda, the wife, and by Marty and Shmuel Liebman, daughter and son-in-law, and Amy. Uh, Dr. Saffer is someone, is, uh, I don't have many friends, <laughs> you don't know me, <laughs> but uh, I did have him, and uh uh, was a psychologist who came to Baltimore, became from, and uh, was, I learned with him for many years. We were very, very, very close, and he was an eminent. Uh, he was an excellent person in two areas: in his professional area, which was uh, child psychology, he was one of the leading practitioners, and uh, I learned a lot from him. Mainly, a rabbi shouldn't pretend to be a psychologist, uh, and also as a human being, he had a great genius for French, a very wide range of French, a very unusual person, and he passed away in 2005, so it's 15 years now, my goodness, it's 15 years, and we all miss him very much, and that's not a rhetorical statement, um, it's, uh, <laughs> some people leave a, a hole, and especially, besides the friendship side, in the rabbi business, if you don't have a good shrink you can call on for um, cases that people have, for example, abuse cases and things, like listen, you know, all kind of things out there. Um, and there aren't that many good practitioners that you can uh, consult with, send people to. So we miss him uh, very, very badly. Um, when he was alive, being a rabbi was a lot easier. You could send people in. And, uh, well, anyway, I won't go into that. Uh, and I could go on about uh, Jerry Saffer for a long time, but I can just a very unusual uh, human being and made a big Russian and everybody with whom he interacted. And that's why he leaves a big uh, void, big void. So uh, I can't believe it's 15 years. And uh, as I said, so in, I'm uh, privileged to be able to uh, say that the spot today is to dedicate this memory. Uh, it was really Zechel Abrocha. I wanted to talk today about somebody, uh, and Jerry would appreciate this. He probably bought the safer because he used to got, buy all the crazies for, that I buy. So he had a very unusual library at his home um, with Linda. I want to talk with somebody. There are two types of famous people I talk about in these podcasts, famous rabbis of old. One are famous people that you've heard of, and other famous people are, uh, others are famous people that no one's heard of. Now, I know it sounds funny, but you know what I mean. Uh, there are people that everybody's heard the name, and then there are others only the cognoscenti. Uh, but among those groups, they're very well known. So, 
If I say Ramosha Feinstein, everybody heard that name. But if I say the words I'm going to talk about today, I don't think many people heard about him at all. But those who did, did. And uh, very chashiv. And that's uh, Zarach Eidelitz from uh, the 17th, 18th century Prague. Here's a person of the type that I've been talking about a lot, the early modern period. But uh, really a very un- unique individual. Zarach Eidelitz. Eidelitz is named town of Moravia, but the people who came from there, you know, that's a... They have such names. You know, you always take the, like, the last name is Berlin, the last name is London, last name is Warsaw, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, here's somebody who lived in very, very interesting times and achieved fame primarily as a Darshan, even though it was a very big Rashid and, and Tamachal besides that. And I've spoken about this in the past. It's, you know, Pakish May. Some people come fam- Some people could be talented in many areas, but they'll publish a book in one area, and that's what their reputation will take off in. That's what happened with this person. Uh, here's somebody who didn't live a long life. It's from 1725 to 1780. So what's that? Uh, 55 years. That's young. And uh, a very uh, interesting biography because Prague in the 18th century, besides everything else, was a big hotbed of, of uh, tension and machlokis and also great scholarship. The tension machlokis had to do with Jonas and Abelschitz and the Shabtai Tzvi movement and all the rest of it because Prague was the epicenter of all that. And uh, also, there was the, the, the great Gaonim and the big yeshivas that running on Prague at that time. And also, the constant machlekes and Lashon Har that was so characteristic of the Prague community. It's like a negativeras everybody knows about. Tremendous uh, lack of achtas. Uh, just interesting, you know, from, for the historian. Now, um, he was born, as I said before, in 1725. That doesn't mean anything to you all, but this is the golden days the golden era of Jonas and Aeschitz, meaning the Jonas and Aeschitz was in Prague, I think, from like 1710 to 1740, something, something like that. And uh, he was a super charismatic uh, Rosh Shiva and Magid. He wasn't the Rav. Uh, there were other people the Rav he had fights with, but he, he wasn't the Rav. But Prague was unusual, and there was an unusually large uh, uh, Jewish population, much larger than the typical Jewish community of that time. And it was a big headquarters of Machlekes, it was, but it's also a big headquarters of yeshivas. There always were half a dozen yeshivas at least in the community of Prague, and the place was rock and rolling in the lambda sense. Now, there were negative phenomena going on also, but I'm talking about the learning. Our hero is a very unusual case because he was a, a, an orphan from a poor family. He was born in 1725, and I think his parents died when he was very young. Now, you've got two strikes against you. If you're poor, plus you have an orphan, chances are in the old world, whether you like this or not, you're not going anywhere. Because you're not going to be able to have a, a good education. Can't afford it. You know, can't have a good Rebbe. And, you know, there are poor boys who went in yeshiva, but generally speaking, unless they were super geniuses or something like that, they wouldn't climb the ladder. And they'll never be married to the right girl. And they'll never know the right family and this and that and the other. So in point of actual fact, they won't ever get a job or they'll get a, a third-rate job. This shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it was. And uh, the good jobs were really the monopoly of the uh, families with the yichas and the money. Either one will do. If you have both, it's even better. But the yichas and the money. Now, of course, today we all know the Orthodox world has nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's all a matter of pure meritocracy. Yeah, right. But I'm talking about specifically at that time. And so a guy like him 
should just been basically a loser within the system. He could have lived his life as a person in Prague, you know, no, no problem. Be a, a little uh, schmandrigal somewhere, something like that. And uh, as a young person, he wasn't that interested in learning. And he was to some degree. He liked math. Okay? Totally from, there's nothing to do with Haskell or anything. I haven't liked math. Uh, it's not a crime. As a matter of fact, many great rabbis always attracted to math for perfectly simple reasons. I don't like math, but my father loved it, for example. Yeah, it could be. He got lucky. Because he was a Tamimistika guy, and I mean that in a good sense, not in the bad. I don't mean he was a Tom like a simpleton. Tom, he had a very nice character. So as an orphan, no one to raise him, and just a natural, he had a good character. You ever know, I've known a few people like that. Just a naturally goody, goody two-shoes. Uh, usually it's not like that. Usually you come up in hard school life, and you have to be tough as nails to survive. But some people just are, are nice. By the Teva, and uh, he caught the attention of Rabbi Yonas and Amshitz. And, uh, and he was an orphan, all the rest of it. And for whatever reason, Rabbi Yonas and Amshitz decided, I'm going to take this kid under the wings. Now, this kid's going to be an exception. And he basically took him into his house and he adopted him more or less. And he raised him. And he taught him. And he put time into him. And remember, Yonas and Amshitz has hundreds and hundreds of students. And he was a popular beyond belief with his large student body, plus the Balabatim, all the rest of it. And he's uh, giving shirim 24 hours a day and, and making this famous sermons 24 hours a day. But he put time in for orphan. Isn't that nice? I mean, this is a real story. And um, he taught him, and he saw him grow up to be a Talmud Chacham. I'm not finished. And then he said, uh, this is, I'm not finished with you. i got to get you a position in life. And he he worked to be a Shadchan, Jonas and Abishitz, and he got this guy a Shadach with a millionaire. In Prague, okay, told the guy, take this guy for your son-in-law, and he's a good guy, and all the rest of it, and he will be something, and the guy did it, and that family name was Yerushalmi, that was the family name of the in-laws, and so you might say like this, the guy is lucky beyond belief, he wanted to, he grew up to be really from, he grew up to be a big Tomachacham, and now you have Turgadol B'malcom Echad, he had a father-in-law who literally could pay for his son to have yeshiva, and that's what he did for decades, okay, I don't know, for 30 years, something like that. For a long time, he could sit in the same town where we lived all of his life, didn't have to move anywhere, and um, he could uh, have a yeshiva, in other words, the bills are paid, and so boys are attracted to you depending on your uh, acumen and your uh, intellectual level. And there were other yeshivas in Prague competing at the same time, but you'll get your share. And apparently, listen, what they say was he was a successful teacher, a successful rebbe. He made many students who went on to big things. I've never been locate them myself, which always interested me, but nevertheless, I don't think they're lying. So you might say like this, this is great. And not only that, his wife seems to have been a very understanding person. It was a good shidduch in the sense that she was devoted to the same cause. You know, I'm guessing because I never knew him, but he seems to have been a very nice person. Probably a very nice husband, you know, that type. And so she was lucky to have him, even though she's the rich one. And she also helped, um, you know, run a business or something like that. He didn't have to do nothing. So he could sit and learn and give she him and that sort of business. In this, so this is, if he's born in 1725, so imagine when I'm talking about happens, I don't know, it would have to be when he's about 15 years old or approximately, or 16 or 17 years old. No, it could be 18 also or 19. The reason I'm saying that is not to be funny or show off, but, you know, Yonason Apeshitz was in Prague, 
And uh, this is just a well-known historic date that in the 1740s, when this guy was 15 and 16 and all that, uh, a big war broke out in Central Europe called the War of the Austrian Succession. I actually spoke about this a couple weeks ago when I talked about Emmanuel Hayreki. And this is one of those obscure wars that only uh, specialists know about. Very interesting, by the way. But everybody was against everybody. It was Austria versus Prussia versus England, France. Everybody was in it. And um, Prague was a war zone. And uh, it's a Yudua that the French army uh, captured Prague in 1742, I think. And uh, around that time, 1742 or 1743, uh, this Mignon and Saint just left Prague uh, under suspicious circumstances, meaning he didn't stay with the people in the city, but he got a Stella to be rabbi in Metz in France. So the French army was occupying Prague in the middle of the war. Later, they chased out. And the big rabbi, not the rabbi of the city, but the big Rashiva, then left to move to France um, to be a rabbi in the most important uh, Ashkenazi community in France, in Metz. That's part of the biography of Yonis Amishitz. So if you do a little triangulation, the guy was born in 1725, and Yonis Amishitz left in, when he was 19 or 18 or 17. So he made the shit up for this guy when he's in his middle teens, I would say 16, 17 years old. Something in that area. That's very nice. Matter of fact, it leads me to think that probably Rabbi Yonis and Eichet said like this, I'm going to be going soon. This kid's an orphan. I'm not going to be around to take care of him. Before I go, I want to see he's taken care of. Which would really be a, a, a tzaddik. You understand? Because he could have said like this, I'm hitting the road and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting a new life, which of course he did. Uh, Abe Schutz I'm talking about, but, uh, you know, and whoever's behind will make, make one of their own. And he said, no, I'm going to take care of this kid. He needs a break. And he made the Shidduch. So then, so Yonah was, was had left Prague in 43, I guess, 44, one of those years. And uh, I'm going to take the trouble to look it up. And um, at that point, he never came back again. So our hero, Zerach Heidlis, is, you know, in his late teens. And uh, now I guess he knows how to learn on his own. And like I say, hit the jackpot. He married this millionaire family that they are willing to support. They, they're happy and willing to support that he should have his own yeshiva. Not too many guys going to rush him at 18. <laughs> 19, pretty good. But it's not so simple because in 1745, which would be when he's 20 years old, came a uh, very notorious incident of anti-Semitism in Jewish history when the Jewish community of Prague was expelled, the Empress Maria Theresa, who was a real mumzer, mumzeris, uh, was the Austrian Empress, and she hated Jews. She hated Jews. And these are the wars between her and Frederick the Great, which are very well known to military historians. I'm actually planning to do a series about this in June, the Jews and, the, and, and those wars. If the corona situation eases up, I'm actually looking for sponsors about that. I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll send out a podcast for that one, uh, but putting that aside, uh, so she was convinced that the Jews had helped the enemy, the Prussians, which wasn't really true, you know, I mean, it's hard to explain these things, but in those days when wars went on, everybody traded with the enemy, that's just the way it is, you know what I'm saying, happened in the American Revolution, happened all the time, um, happened in this country too, by the way, meaning World War II, for better or worse, there were companies that traded with the Germans, or, you know. Anyhow, uh, whatever the case is, uh, 
so she got real angry, and uh, without, I don't want to go into all the details about this, so she kicked all the Jews out of Prague, which means you had to leave in the winter. And that means you leave and you have no place to stay. So that's a real bummer. And uh, so he obviously was part of that. At that point, uh, Rabbi Yonis Eibschitz and others organized, like you might say, a Katsala campaign. Maybe that's the right word, early lobbying campaign. And it's very interesting that uh, influential court Jews in other places, like in England, for example, in Holland, uh, and I'm thinking of doing a talk next week about some court Jews, uh, they were able to intervene with their governments to put pressure on Maria Theresa to sort of back off, because uh, that's what she did in the end. I think it's also true that the local economy caved. Now, as the Gaimel said, we don't like the Jews, but if they pull out, it's causing mass unemployment and stuff like that. And so, she let him back in. And this guy was all part of that. So he was away for a year, something came back, and uh, this was a huge wrenching experience. Everybody was in Prague for hundreds and hundreds of years. Next thing you know, everybody's kicked out. And if you come back, it's never again exactly the same thing, right? And uh, the result is that Yizarch uh, Eidlitz always used to say in his speeches afterwards, it's never been the same since the Gerish. And uh, it was a big blow, and the learning is no longer the same, and the chinuch is no longer the same, and the davening is no longer the same. The reason I say that is, it's a little scary for me to think about his speeches today from the corona. I hope it doesn't come when it's all over. The corona will say, eh, it's not what it used to be. The yeshivas aren't what they used to be. The davening is what it used to be. I mean, we hope that's not the case, right? But he's saying his case was, of course, there was much more wrenching experience. It was Mama Shagolas. And then he came back, so it was, uh, about 1746, so from the age of 21 to 55, so it's about 30 years, right? 30-some years, 35 years or so. He spent the rest of his life in Prague. Now comes the politics. When the people came back, um, I remember there was a big fire, the whole place burned down, they had to rebuild it back and forth, and everybody was impoverished, and the empress, the situation was so bad that Maria Theresa had to give him money, which he didn't want to do, to rebuild the houses and so forth. There's a whole long history to it. And then the question became like this. Um, who should be the Rav of the reconstituted community? Of the reconstituted community. Now, uh, by this time, Rabbi Yonis was in uh, Metz, and then he went to uh, Ahug, you know, Hamburg and Wandsbeck. And this is where whole Emden Amshitz fight blew, uh, blew up, where they accused Yonis Amshitz of a Shabtai Tzvinik, and all hell broke loose. At this time, uh, here's the interesting politics. So, Amshitz had, as is obvious in this community like Prague, he had his pro-team and his, his anti-team. There are people who loved him, people who hated him. Always was like that. I know you'd be shocked to hear Moshe Rabbeinu about people like that also. So, it, 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 that was part of the politics of Prague. And so the question is, who will be the, uh, the next guy who will be elected chief rabbi of Prague? Even though the community was impoverished and all the rest of it, but they started to make their money again. At least the richy riches started to make money again with government contracts. The poor, poor were, were bad off. And uh, in the midst of all this, here's our hero, whose family did have money, and I can only assume that their money was well invested so that it wasn't too badly affected by the Gerush that had just described the expulsion. And uh, so he came back and landed on his feet, and uh, he established, like I said before, in one of the, he had a shul, in one of the shuls, obviously, I mean, a, a yeshiva, excuse me, and he was doing great. It turned out... That having been a disciple of Yonas and Abishitz, 
naturally, he's a wannabe. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean in a good way. If you're a real Talmud of a Rebbe, then you want to imitate the Rebbe. So uh, that's just a natural trait. And that's what he tried to do. So for the rest of his life, Yonasan Imshitz had a big yeshiva and turned a lot of Talmudim, and they became close and attached to him, and all the was a natural mechanech, as we would say today. So this guy, Zarchetlis, was the same thing. And Yonasan Imshitz was a tremendous speaker. With him, you got a two-in-one that uh, totally, aside from him being a, a, a gone, totally separate from that, he happened to be a fantastic speaker. You know, not everybody's got the gift of the gab. He was a fantastic speaker, and he was the, the master darshan, perhaps at the early modern period, certainly the 18th century, in the old types of drushes in which he mixed together with pilpul and lomdas together with uh, agarato and, and uh, rhetoric. Successful rhetoric. I spoke about that in the past. So anybody who knows anything knows, when you come to the drusha literature, which is what I'm into today, Speaking about today, I would say the, the Yaris Dvash is probably at the top of the list, uh, in my opinion, um, and or, or in the top three. So this person, Zarchaylis, wants to do it also. And so he becomes a Darshan. Uh, and uh, remember, he doesn't have to take a penny. So a lot of times in his speeches, he says, you might listen to the Musser the other guy gave because you think he's saying because he's getting paid. I'm, you know me, I'm not getting paid. I don't need a penny from all you. You, you can all jump in the lake. Uh, I'm, I don't need the rich people, I don't know because I'm rich. And so if I say you should do this, I'm not afraid of calling a spade, a spade and calling names names. And boy, does he, in his published rushes, he doesn't name names, but he says, we have certain houses in here where all kind of non-sneeze things is going on. You know who I'm talking about. We have coffee houses here that become base Moshe of Shal Latham. And to use modern terminology, is a pizza parlor hangout, you know, and they should be closed down. And I remember he, you know, uh, he says, and the pizza guys will hate me. Those days it was a coffee shop. 18th century, it's a coffee shop. You know, by the way, we have coffee shops now. There are a lot of them are starting up in from communities. He said, it's a hangout. And the coffee guys are going to hate my guts because I'm, 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 I'm calling a spade a spade and, and telling the truth. And I'm telling, he was real firm. So he said, listen, if you're going to make the parnosa, you're going to make the parnosa. And he should be angry that I'm, I'm uh, closing you down or at least calling attention to bad things that are happening in your place. And the Rabbanu Shalom will make up the money if you're meant to make, you know, let's say, for example, you're supposed to make 90000 this year, you'll make 90000 next year. But you guys, this is what he says, you guys are so narrow-minded, such jerks, that you're going to hate me for saying it. And if you make the extra 90000 let's say the pizza place will close, then you'll be at a gas station, make another ninety. So you'll say, well, instead of saying, I see it's 90, connected 90, so Rabbanu Shalom had, had in mind to give me 90 a year, uh, whether it be a pizza shop or a movie house or a, or a gas station or a, you know, a bookstore, it'll come out to 90. Instead of saying that, you're going to say, I'm telling you what he says in speech. You're going to say, see, I could have had both stores. I could have had the pizza store and the, and the gas station. I would have made 180, which isn't true. And, you know, so he had that quality of, you know, throwing in people's face because he wasn't scared when anybody saw because he's independently wealthy. So not many times in Jewish history, not many times in Jewish history you have somebody who becomes an effective public speaker, a darshan, and isn't afraid to tell people what he thinks, and literally isn't afraid, and, and is rich. You know, most of the Maginim that I know about in Jewish history eh, were the opposite of rich. You know, some were poor, some were not poor. You know, you know Kliyaka wasn't poor, but they weren't rich. This guy was rich by marriage. Just very interesting. And now, the big question was, who should become the Abbez and the rabbi of the city? Now, he was the leader of the Jonas and Ancients team. Uh, he doesn't want to hear anything that Yonah Samshitz is a shop that's to be anything like that. 
because he says, listen, I was with him all the time. I never heard any of this kind of stuff. It's a bull. It's all lies. You understand? And, uh, of course, that makes people like Rabbi Yaakov Emden and the others, because the whole thing blew up in 1751. That's when the whole fight, public fight, arose. Now, this, our hero would be 26 years old. Correct? So, here's a guy, 26 years old, who was in love with the other name. Just so would you be if you were taking care of him like him. As far as he knows, he's a Malachal king. And, uh, uh, so he wants him to come back to be the chief rabbi of Prague. On the other hand, the government had declared Abishutz an, an outlaw because he went to France in the middle of a war with France. So he's an enemy agent, so he can't come. You understand? And so, so what do you do? So it became a big issue in the early 1750s. Prague is looking for a rabbi. Who should they take? If anybody uh, came out in favor of Abishutz as super duper, you won the support of one faction but you got the bitter opposition of the opposite faction. If you came out and said Abishitz was a Shabtai Tzvinik, the opposite way, right? You came out with one faction, the anti-guys like you, but the pro-guys, the Xarag Idlis, I hate you. You see? So who are you going to get? The famous story is it was Nobi Huda got it. But Nobi Huda wrote a famous letter in the middle of all this. It's a well, very well-known letter, uh, recently translated in English, for those who care, in which he basically said like this, you know, uh, I don't know if Abishu says, uh, I'm talking about the note of Yehuda, what he writes. And he says, look, I don't like what he wrote. The Kamiyas that are shown to me, these amulets look to me like treif as they come. On the other hand, he says, Abishu says he didn't write them. And he has a cheskis kashros, I'll peek in. And so basically my approach is, let's bury the whole matter. You get it? Let's bury the whole matter. In fact, take all these amulets that Abishu says and literally bury them. And then we should look at them. Like was known with Sefer Yecheskel, or they wanted to, Bikish Lik Sefer Yecheskel, even Yecheskel was real Novi. So, no, so basically, you say like this Yonas Abishas is to be believed because he has a Cheskel's Kashras. That is not, my friends, a ringing endorsement. You understand? What he's really saying is, me, myself, and I, I think that he's phony. I think he's a, a Sabatian. But I don't think it's worth pushing this all the way to the limit since he denies he is, as a big Chil Hashem otherwise. And therefore, the idea is like this. Don't talk about him anymore. Leave him alone. And, um, you know, assume the best about him and move on. Now, this was a stance that was in the middle. It was like, you say, not Milchag, not Flesh, not Parv. But that turned out to be the thing that won him to, to vote in Prague because he's the least objectionable. The anti guys could say, well, he never said he is. And the pro guys could say, I'm sorry, I said it wrong. The pro guys could say he never said he is a Sabatian. The anti-guy said, you certainly see, he feels he is. And so, in that funny way, he got elected, and the Nota Behuda, they were there for 40 years on that basis. But it's very famous that the Nota Behuda said, um, wisely so, I'm walking into a hornet's nest. Uh, and he did. And it's very famous, he says, that when they write me at Savra Bonus, I want the Zerach Eidlis to sign on it also, to show that there are no hard feelings, and that indeed, you know, and indeed, which, how should I put it, uh, you know, I have the support of all factions, and this was with the understanding that the Nodeh Behuda is going to try to be Mr. Shalom, which he was. So basically, during the 40 years that he was in Prague, especially because he, he was dealing with people like Zarek Eidlitz, whom he super respected, and he knew was a Tzadik Tomim, and he was a real from guy, and so whatever the Nudabi Hood himself personally felt about Yonis Abishitz, he's like, it's in the position of the rabbinate, 
and I would say this Nebuchadnezzar Yehuda is probably the, the outstanding occupant of the rabbinical position in many regards. Uh, and we have to push for Achdus. So let's not just talk about it. Let's just not talk about it. You understand? Uh, so it's clear for all these years that he was there, that he didn't hold the Yonah Zayim On the other hand, he never spoke a word against him. And uh, he was Mechabed, uh, what's his name, Zarech Eidlitz. And uh, the two got, and, and he worked hard. I'm talking about Yonah Zayim uh, I said it wrong. I'm talking about the note of Yudah. Worked hard to win the favor of the pro Abishitz people in Prague. And uh, and he did. The good ones, like people like Rezerach Heidlitz, he did he didn't win their support over, which which is a tribute to his statesmanship. You understand? Never say the wrong thing, never anything. Dicker is Torah, Dicker is the learning, Dicker is the Yerushalayim. Let's concentrate on all this positive stuff. We don't want to spend all the time hocking in the back about the latest Lush and Hard business or in the blogs. Let's try to lift the conversation to a higher level. And that's certainly what he did. And so from then on, for the next uh, 25 years, because the came in in 1755, and our hero, Avelitz, died in 1780. So for 25 years, they were together in Prague. And I'll tell you again, these are two high-class people, not low-class people. I mean, people with high characters and not low characters. So each one, I'm sure, was, was careful, you know, not to uh, bring up uh, unpleasant subjects in which they disagreed, since they agree on 99% of everything else. And as a result, um, the Nebuchadnezzar here was the Rav there, and Adlis was on his base then, which is something. And the Nebuchadnezzar had a yeshiva of 400 guys in Prague, because he was a superstar, and Zerachim had a yeshiva of 100 guys. You know, that's pretty good too. Which he was able to run out of his out of his back pocket. And the Nerdby, who was a famous Darshaner, you know, you give it, there's a Drushes, a Slach, and things like that, especially the classic Shabbat Shub, another one. And Zarachedus had plenty of room for him to give plenty of Drushes. And the Nerdby, who himself says, I went to listen to his Drushes because he was a great speaker, maybe better than me. And even says, you, re- you, he- you read some of his published Drushes, you will do Teshuvah. That's why the Hasidim later on made a big deal of publishing or republishing the uh, the, the Drusha Shaper, I'll talk about it in a minute, of Zarchidlitz, because they said, I guess, if the Nerdy had said you you would do Chubi listen to Drushas, everybody should buy a book, you know, and get it. So um, everything was good for I would say approximately twenty years. Something along those lines. Approximately twenty years. So Prague went up and down and there were wars and, you know, the seven years war was there and all this stuff. And uh, uh in private, the Nodav Yehuda still hated Yonah Zayimshitz. And the reason I say it is because at the end of the Seven Years War in 1764, I think it was, when um, when our hero was uh, 40 years old and the Nodav Yehuda was 1713, he was in his uh, 50s, 52 years old or so, 51 years old, um, and Jonas Anabschitz was in his, about 70 or so, something like that. The years matter. So, um, Rabbi Jonas Anabschitz had had enough of the rabbinate, and uh, even in his community in Ahu, and, uh, you know, the, the, and the fights were, were, were wearisome, and the bottom line is he wanted in his old age to return and retire to Prague. He's now 70 years old, you know, Berich, and maybe older even, and 
And I just want to go back to Prague, which is the city I always like the most and has the most Torah. And there I can spend my remaining years, you know, with my own base medrash and my own yeshiva, all the rest of it. Um, oh boy. When the Nerebihuda heard about this, it's very famous. He wrote a letter in German to the Austrian Empress, to Maria Theresa, who, as I said, was a big anti Semite, but she held of him, of the Nerebihuda. Basically, her attitude was like, it's all Jews stink. But if, but if you got to have a rabbi, he's the best. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, it's of all the, he, he at least is, is Epis. And it's a famous letter in a funny German, it's a, not a great German, in which he basically said, do not let this guy Abishas come back because he's a Sabatian and it'll cause uh, big trouble in the community. And it's him or me. If he moves here, I leave. And she said, the heck with that. And, she, and the Austrian government wouldn't let him come back. Right? Now, this is supposed to be a secret letter which was discovered in the 1800s by Gretz. Uh, and I don't think Rizark Adlis knew anything about this, because when Yonah Samshid died not long after, because that's what happened, he died not long after, he gave a hesped, my goodness, in which he basically said, and this is very famous, it's always quoted in the Eveshitz biographies, he said, first of all, this is my rabbi who raised me from my orphan, he got me to Shidduch and did everything, that's for sure. Second of all, in learning is unsurpassed, in, the, in Nigla, he was a Rambam. And in Nigla, he's an Arizal. That's what he said. You see? I say it again. This is Zarek Eidlis talking about Yonis Eibshitz. In Nigla, he was a Rambam. And in Nister, he was an Arizal. Okay? Which means he was supreme in both areas. And we were yearning for him to come back and all this. And so basically, you see over here, the Nerbi Huda had to play politics. And I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean, it's in a statesman-like fashion. He wasn't going to bring up the fact that I don't hold for your Rebbe or anything like this. And um, if you know the history at that time, um, the Nod Yehuda was sort of like compelled to give a hespid for Yonas and Abishitz. And it's a very famous hespid, by the way. And it's actually published in, um, in the Yaris Yeah, you can see Manuka and everything. And he says, listen, we didn't get along. He says these words. We didn't get along, but... You know, I will concede that he was great in this and great in that. He was a fantastic speaker. And so and so it knows he tried his best to uh, give what we would call today Achimos Kedosha Memoir. <laughs> right? Achimos Kedosha Memoir. Instead of going the other route, Mitzora Achimos. You know, he didn't want to do that. And so, uh, although there are many Prague stories, I could tell you, you know, there he didn't do with enough feeling and people said, we want you to cry more, look, make, make it look like you mean it. Uh, and it's also true that the Mrs. Nodebihu to the wife pushed him to do it. Whatever the case is, there's no question in my mind that if there was anybody he wanted to be Mephayes, it would be, first of all, there were some rich and powerful people that were friends of Abishitz, but I'm sure also, Lee Biomerly, that he wanted to be Mephayes, people like Rosar Chaitlis, who were, to me, Mystica, you know, 100% uh, super from Erlicha guys who believed Yonah Samshitz was incapable of anything involving Sabatianism. And uh, nobody who himself personally didn't feel that way, but nevertheless, he told the line. So it's, the politics to me is just very interesting. So as I said, for 20 years, um, he was able to have his uh, cake and eat it. He had his yeshiva. Listen, I don't know, they say he turned out thousands of students. I don't know, but I mean, the, that's the Lashonas. It's hard to hear, but okay. Um, it, it's hard to hear. But anyway... Um, it could be, and he also gave he, this renowned speaker. You understand? And Prague, in general, has a history, especially in the 18th century, of um, what do you call it? Being 
how shall I put it, uh, famous uh, good uh, orators. There's a whole uh, tradition of that in Prague. And Prague is very interesting, especially 18th century, because they're not against Limurichol, but they're not in favor of it either. Maybe they had one of these old, old-fashioned ideas, which is obviously 99% should be Torah, but 1% is okay, 2% is okay. You know, uh, and Adelis was from this school, as you'll see in a second. Because around the time he was 50 or so, something those years, uh, the bottom dropped out. His wife died, and um, he had no more pranosa. And he wasn't trained to do anything. And where's he going to get money? So all these years he could say, ha, 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 I don't need you, and I can give whatever I want. I don't need anybody. Now he does. And the last five years of his life or so, he was broke. And that's a terrible, terrible situation. It's a little bit like what we're seeing now in the corona business, where some businesses were doing great, and unfortunately the bottom dropped out. You know, catering, I don't know, whatever. You calculate a whole of Parnosa, and then it's not there. So what do you do now? And he was, what's the right word? He, he had been raised, and he had been in the luxury of being a very uh, honorable person in the following sense. Never took a penny from anybody because he never needed to. So he was in the basin, he had shoals, he had yeshivas, never took a penny. And people used to come and bring him presents because that's what he did to a big Talmud once upon a time and a rov and all the rest. They wouldn't take up, he wouldn't accept him. You understand? Now he's like unique in this. Of course he's unique. I mean, he didn't need it. But I'm just saying he made it a shtick with him. He doesn't take it, he doesn't take a penny. Now he needed to take a penny. He couldn't do it. <laughs> he couldn't do it. You understand? It was too, it's too much in the teva, and it was too dishonorable for him to say, now I'm reduced to a situation where I need to take the money. And there's a number of stories, I don't know if they're true or not, connected with his last five years in which, you know, uh, let's put it this way, he had alienated a lot of richy rich people, and now they really stuck it into him because they said he used to be a member of the community who was taxed. Now, he could have gotten out of paying taxes. That's not his style. I pay taxes like everybody else. And he paid taxes at the highest bracket because he used to be making money at the highest bracket. Now he's broke. And, you know, he's not the type to say, he couldn't bring himself to go and say, now I need a lower tax bracket. You know, uh, his, his sense of honor was too unrealistic. And uh, different all kinds of things are, are in there. And he, and his enemies now, because he had enemies. Why would he have enemies? First of all, I don't know. Second of all, I'm going to guess. You read the Sefer, you see why he had enemies. He called it like he seated, you know? Uh, he, was, he was obviously a big social critic, and I mean this in the most honorable way, meaning he called it like he sees it. If people are doing wrong in this, he said they're doing wrong in this. They said that, and he doesn't care if it offends rich people or not rich people. That's a dangerous business in the old world. You see? If you look at Jonas and Amos, he was a master artist. He knew how to go and criticize people without ever doing it directly in a very interesting, uh, super artistic way. But Zarek Heidlis is more direct. <laughs> you know, more direct. And uh, if you read his uh, published books, you know, you, you, you see that. So what do you do? Uh, he's at this high bracket. He couldn't bring himself to say, you know, low. And he had a family. And they're not all married yet or anything like that. And, you know, what do you do? So he had a, 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 a bitter years. I think it was like five, six bitter years. And uh, there are many mices of this. And, you know, he had to go to his chief enemy, who was the head of the community, Israel Frankel. And, uh, you know, he said, listen, um, you know, I, I, I can't pay this here or something like that. 
And even the enemy, when he saw how much he was busted, you know, had to give it. He wasn't that much of a jerk, you know. And he said, listen, I'll get you a lower bracket. No, I can't do a lower bracket. Then he said something like, all right, then I'll tell you what. Notice he went home, and then the rich guy sent him like 3,000 uh, silver dollars or whatever, golden dollars, which is a lot of money. But he wouldn't take it, you know. And then the rich guy got angry. You don't take it? If you don't take it, then I'll double your tax. Because as a head of the community, he could do that. And so he said, fine, I'll take it. Uh, and so he said, so the other guy, listen to this. So the rich guy put him on a high bracket because he figured I'm giving him a ton of money every year. Uh, you know, every year I gave him three, 4000 you know, a lot of money. It's a famous story. When he died, the money was all there. He never told anybody, he never touched it. You get it? Which means he really suffered privation during the last five years because of his pride. The money was there, the cash was there, but he never would touch the Tzuruus the, the Akesev. He never would touch the bags full of money. That's why he put in his last will and testament, when I'm gone, give it to the guy and tell him I never took a penny. That's a very famous story. And Meir Kisa, he had to go and borrow from Nodibihuda, who was rich. And there's a famous story, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but you know it's one of those famous uh, fables of old, which is sometimes brought down in the storybooks, that, uh, what do you call it? He came to Nodibihuda, this is how the story goes, came to Nodibihuda, said, I'm broke, 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 and Nodibihuda, who had money, he had a good salary and all the rest, he came from rich family, he just took out whatever money was around, it was also like 3,000, the story goes it was 3,000 gold coins, they here, take this, and, you know, as a halva, you know, that's a polite way of doing it, and, you know, what he did, he said, I'll pay you back when I can, he said, you know, no problem, whenever you, you can, and then Mrs., the story goes like this, Mrs. Nodibihuda comes in, and she was at Sadekis. Um, and she said, what happened to the money? It was a table. I gave it to Zarek because he's broke. And she said, what do we do now with the, with, with the missing money? He says, don't worry, it'll come. And the story is that right afterwards, he got a big din Torah, and you know, he was paid for it, uh, for being a judge. He was paid three, by the millionaires who were involved, paid 3,000 gold coins. You know, me to connect me to whatever he already paid. That's a nice story if it's true. Um, but it goes to show you the poverty that suddenly hit our hero. And, you know, in the Gemara, the Mishnah, they talk about a rich person all of a sudden being poor. And that's a double problem because they're just not used to it. And the halacha, the old halacha, which I know you know, is they have to support a rich guy in the, in the style of life to which he's accustomed. You know, if he had a horse and a, the outriders and those kind of stuff, that's the opinion of Basello. And, uh, you know, I don't think that would go in America today. You know, because you used to have a Rolls Royce, if I have to give me a Rolls Royce, what's wrong with a Chevy? If you're taking money from the Sadaka, Chevy's also good. But that's not a European old fashioned way of thinking. He didn't take money from Sadaka. And so I don't know how he made ends meet. I know he tried to. And here he did something very interesting. I told you, when he was young, he liked math. And all his life, he was interested in math. So uh, now he's broke. Now this guy's a Russia Shiva and a member of the Bayesden in a very high honorable position, and he couldn't bring himself to kiss up to the richy rich guys and ask for breaks. That he couldn't do. But uh, something else he could do. And he said like this, I will um, set myself up to be a math tutor. Now imagine Ramosha Feinstein giving out math lessons. You know what I'm saying? Rabbi Ruderman giving out math lessons. It's a funny thing, because he was that big of a Talmud Chacham, you know? And um, he said, uh, you know, Pshot Nevela, how's it go? Basically, the old Yakesha virtues. There's no such thing 
as dishonorable parnosa. You see? Any work you do, which you do honestly and so forth, uh, and you get and you earn your bread in an honest way, there's nothing uh, dishonorable about any of it. Even if you're a ditch digger or a garbage man or something like that, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? Now, a lot of people don't feel that way, but some people do. And he they say, I'll be a math tutor. And he wrote a book on math. Right? It's called Melechus Machsheves. And I just looked it up on the internet, on the um, Hebrew books. It's there, if you want. It's a basic, it's nothing great. It's, you know, it's like, I would say, it's like a ninth grade math book or something along those lines. Uh, in Hebrew, of course, has to teach somebody the math. And he says over there, I used to be able to, you know, me and my wife, we had enough money. Now we're broke. And I'm doing this, you know, to pay bills and make weddings and things like this. And, and I'm not ashamed to do it. And, um, you know, the book brought into some kind of money. They, they, uh, the, what do you call it? His successor, the Fleckless, the Chumialba wrote, also he published his Drush's uh, books. The Fleckless did. He said, listen, I need money, you know, to have, have to have chastas to make, and I'm not rich, and so I hope to make money by selling, uh, you know, selling the books. And so here's a real unusual case of a person who was of the big stature of the big rabbis and in a city like Prague, the reason we haven't heard out of him because no debut outshined him. But big deal. No debut outshined a lot of people. That doesn't mean you're you're not big. Uh, and then he didn't mind, uh, you know, writing a math book and um, and uh, you know trying to make a part of that way, which is a perfectly honorable way of doing it. So you give tutoring lessons, you write a book, all the rest of it. It's it's a what should I say? It was, it was a sad ending for the last years. I don't know if this is why he died at the age of 55. Maybe it was a Magaifer or something like that, you know, in those years. Could be that he was depressed. You see? Because he had been in a high position, and, th- and then he fell. And then he fell. And so, as I say, he died at the age of 55. And I think after his time, they published his a selection of his sermons called Or La Yesharim, Or La Yesharim which became a classic, as they say, among the cognoscenti. Uh, the early Sharm, there are 14 drushes. He gave a lot more in his lifetime. It's, it's a selection. The same way the Yaristvash is a selection of, um, of the sermons. And these are drushes of the 18th century variety, the classic type, with the lumbus and the pilpul, and, he, and it's edited. And so this is the old school. He even says over here, I love this. He says, before I... He says... Um, um, before I get get into my Musr section, he says, I'll do a Lomdish section first, because this is the old days. These are in the Shoals of Prague. There were like 11 Shoals, and he, or 9 Shoals, and he spoke in each one on different occasions. You know, Shabbat Shubh, Shabbat this, this is the Sayonad, you know, all the regular times, Hespids, whatever, people used to speak in the old country. And, uh, he was a big Talmud Chacham, and so when he would come to speak, so everybody would come to listen, and uh, including a lot of Talmud Chachamim. And he says over there, in order to attract the Talmud Chachamim, before I get to the Musa section, I'll do a pilpul. No, I'll do a lamdasha thing. And naturally the result will be that you'll try to slug me up, and we'll have a lot of fights and arguments in Shul. And this is great. This is, you know... Milcham uh, Torah, and let the Amaratzim see this and be impressed. And once we finish that part, then I'll get around to my Musa remarks, which obviously must have been more toned down and meant for the broad public. So, Let me throw out a Kash and a Teretz 
for the Talmud to come over here, and then they'll scream at him, and he'll scream back, and this and that and the other. And uh, like I say before, Riv Lashem Imamo, they have an argument the way Hashem likes it, which is a Melcham Toshel Torah. And afterwards, you know, we'll get to the uh, the, the moral section of, of the rest of it. So it's just, it's just interesting. And this is how it used to be in, in, in all those days. Um, sometimes he says, <laughs> sometimes he says, you know, um, especially in Chodesh Elul, uh, in Tishrei, when you want to give a speech uh, or a hesped, first speak very plainly, and then you get to the Musa part in the middle, and then end very plainly. That's Tekiah, Shoram Trua, Tekiah. First comes the Tekiah, to speak plainly, then the Shoram Trua, you give the Shtak Musa, and then the Tekiah end up in a nice way. And it, uh, there's no way I can do justice to this book, just to inform you that it exists. And if you're interested, you can look around. It, my copy was published by, I think, Sotmer in the 1999. It's been published from time to time. And it is a, it is a classic. It is a classic, if you like that sort of thing over there. And it's got all the social criticism of the classic 18th century uh, speeches. I'll tell you one thing. He doesn't like, like I said before, he had a war against coffee shops and against Chazanim, <laughs> right? Among others. But I remember that. The coffee shop's obviously a headquarters for who knows what. And uh, and the and the Chazanami says, you know, we're trying to just show off. Chazanami with choirs. He considered that terrible. He said, whoever Dobbins was real company, we listen to a Chazanami. Now, by the way, that's not so simple. I've been in shows. If you have a good a choir and all the rest of it, it can be very inspiring if you know what you're doing. But on the other hand, it's also possible for a person to just be carried away by the Chazan. I had a whole group that I took to Europe a year ago in the summer of 2019. Uh, we were in Vienna, for example, and I showed with the choir, and the, everybody loved it. You see? And I mean that in a spiritual way. You see? You know, a good chazan, well, a good thing can be an uplifting experience. Obviously, he didn't see it that way. You see? And he said, I know they're going to hate me, but I don't care. And, you know, I'm calling again as I see it. And uh, he, <laughs> he says, there are certain houses over here. I assume he means the house of the rich and the other where they have parties, and boys and girls are dancing together. And, you know... He must have named names, but it's not in the book. You know, he says, I won't name the names here. And uh, he bemoans the fact that the learning has gone down ever since the Jews were kicked out of Prague. And all I can tell you is that uh, it's a very interesting safer of a certain type. I can't say everybody will like it, but anybody who knows a little bit and you can appreciate the old-fashioned Hebrew uh, will, will find it, in my opinion, will find it enchanting. It's a great uh, safer, and he covers all different types of life. And he's got that, you know, sticky way of, you know, he's, he, he's saying something, and all of a sudden he, he reinterprets a chazal or a pasuk in a completely unusual and original way, uh, which people like me like. And so uh, the safer, like him, became famous among those who know. You understand? A lot of the big rebbers and big rabbonim always say, oh, the Orla Sherman, they made sure to buy a copy and all the rest of it. But it was reprinted that many times. And it got kind of rare. And that's why I'm glad. When I first heard about him and started to get interested in him, it was a very pleasant surprise. I walked in New York somewhere and I saw, whoa, a brand new edition of Orla Charm. I can't believe they ever put it out there. Last time was like in the 1940s or 50s or whatever. And it's a very nice edition, right? It's a very nice edition. It's a Hutsas Curious Saver, whoever they are. And uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's a gem, you know? If you like that sort of thing. So if you're asking a question, what are the great drushes for him? 
Jerusalem of the 18th century. So obviously got the Yonis and Eishets, of course. And uh, the Prussian's Brachen that I mentioned the other day from the Mishnah Mach, of course. And the uh, the speeches in the Nidav Yehuda. And the Orle Hashem of Zarech Edlitz. These are among the, the among the most famous, right? The most famous. And anybody's a, a up-and-coming rabbi who wants to learn the Malacha of giving a drasha in the formal way, but very good way, it's a very good book to read. Notice you can, you can pick you can pick your stuff out there. Now people don't give drushas like this nowadays. I try to, but you know, most rabbis they, they come with a different approach, uh, and uh, you know it's a matter of taste. But in my humble opinion, uh, you could do a lot worse, and uh, it's 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 one of the classics out there. Although Mazali doesn't seem to have not so many people heard about it, and uh, I looked up today. He's not even on the uh, you know in the in in, in the Hebrew internet. It's it's funny, you know. It doesn't seem to have that much mazel, uh, but uh, he left a legacy, as I said before, of being a big tzaddik and a tumim. You can see from the stories about him that, that I just described. You didn't want to take money or all this to add in there, but uh, such is life that things can be rolling along great, and then all of a sudden, without any uh, you know warning, the situation can radically uh, change itself. And had he lived in Poland, he would have moved to another town and become a rover of a different city. Clearly, he was in love with Prague, spent all his life there, didn't want to move. You know, at the age of 50 or whatever, didn't want to move. And uh, and therefore, he was uh, having this situation in which, you know, you live a very prestigious and ultimate lifestyle, but there's no money to back it. And, uh, and that, I think, is a food for thought. So, anyway, that's what I wanted to speak about. And uh, really, I hope that um, those who are interested will take a look at this. If you want, I'm sure it's in the Hebrew books and the old editions. Uh, you have to be a devotee of the Sifra Dadrush, Hadar Shanut. And especially, this will be interesting, Tish above Time and uh, Elul. And if you are, you'll see uh, some really good material, high-quality material that is not usually very, very well known. And that's the stuff you want. The high-quality material that not everybody knows about, that'll be something that you can always take to the table. And with that, I bid you good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.